CEOs Speak is an exclusive BitBeam podcast series featuring interviews of hundreds of skilled and talented CEOs who share their strategies for leading some of the country's most successful companies. Join Charlie Katz, our executive extraordinaire, as he uncovers the heart and soul of today's business leaders. Uh, today, we have the delightful King of Genetics, who is the CEO and founder of Publish Drive, uh, a fascinating concept uh, using technology to change the face of publishing. Uh, and I'm very interested in that since I love to read, and uh, I certainly want to delve into that. But let me start. Uh, I would like to start to find out who you are, because I believe it's the you that created whatever you created, and usually it starts very early on, uh, going back to your grade school. And uh, was there something that inspired you or experience or something within you that when you look back, you could see that that was the root of who you are and where you are today? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks uh, for this uh, invite, and I can be uh, as a guest right now. Um, and and yes, when it comes to my whole publish drive journey, I uh, probably have some kind of background when I was a little child. So I think I was at the age of four only when I started to uh, read on my own. So, you know, my mother was reading out loud the books uh, just next to me. And then somehow I just figured out how the words come together. And I started to create my own stories as well at a very early age. So I basically drew my own comic books, uh, which were really fascinating in a way that I really didn't follow the rules of writing in general, but I actually exchanged something. So I started to write from the right to the left and from the bottom to the top. So it was a bit a different kind of, uh, you know, logic behind it, but you could really guess what is going on. And I think at the time I really fell, fell in love with uh, writing in general and all, all the stories as well. And um, then when I got a bit older, um, at around the eight, uh, age of seven, I actually started to um, get some kind of attraction to music. So that's when actually I started to uh, play the violin. And at that time, I basically had two main passions, music and literature. Uh, and they were always fighting with each other, you know. So they were always next to each other. And uh, when I got into um you know, high school, I started to write and I started to um, have a lot of poems or short novellas as well. And I read basically everything what you could find. So even were, were, uh, were your parents uh, artists? Were your parents teachers, educators, and somehow no. that no? So where did this artistic, this truly artistic nature of yours, uh, fascinating, uh, come from? Was it within the family? Or was it something you? I think. I think somehow from the genes for sure, because I know that uh, my grandfather's uh, sibling, he was actually playing the violin as well. So he was a, a professional musician at some point in his life. Um, so I know that uh, maybe that somehow was in my genes. Uh, but in general, um, my parents, they weren't really into 
you know, singing or music or any artistic scenes. Did, um, did, they, they, mo- did they encourage you? Uh, was there, uh, did they encourage you when they saw you going that direction or they just stood on the side and let you go as you, as you wanted? So I was actually pretty much, um, I would say an ambitious uh, child. So when I started to realize that, yeah, music is interesting for me, then I basically were, uh, was trying to get everything, you know. So I basically were really um, keen on uh, studying music, and I asked my mother to let me do that. Uh, she didn't really know anything about music and whether I should actually play uh, any kind of mu- uh, instruments. Uh, she Basically, I wanted to play the guitar first, and then I didn't get into the guitar uh course in general because it was filled up already with a lot of students uh, and then my mother said okay let's uh, pick a second instrument for you and let's pick um, the violin because it looks similar to the guitar and I was like yeah yeah why not and then at the beginning when I started to play the violin I hated it you know it was like oh my god I didn't want to play the violin I wanted to play the guitar and I was like a Little child who didn't get the, the play, the, the game what they wanted. And then, but then after a few weeks, I just fell in love with, with the violin in general. And, um, I think it came from, uh, inner motivation. So that's what actually I had at the time that I, I really wanted to do something with music. And um, actually, when I was at the age of nine, um, my father died. And I think after that, I delved into music even more because that's what helped me to actually get over with all the things as well. And then probably that's where uh, the whole artistic scene helped me to get over a trauma like that. Yeah, I, I want to explore this uh, for a moment. Uh, I come from a very similar background. I was writing... Instinctively, as a child in elementary school, I was a reader, a voracious reader. My mother was a reader. I'd read adult books, you know, I mean, the big mm-hmm. books, not the children's books. And I've been writing since, and I'm still writing. I'm advertising a, a, a varied career, and I teach creative writing. And mm-hmm. it always fascinates me in, 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 in if I can use this expression, looking into the soul of a true creative person, and 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 it, because it, 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 there's a drive, there you, you know, ambition, there's a hunger, there's a need, an incessant need. It doesn't let go of you, you know. If I could tell in my class who's going to succeed as writing, those who are good, but it takes you know, you got to push them to do something. They'll never be a writer. It's just it just pours out of you. You have to. It's like breathing. You know, you got to write. I mean that's that's it. You can't imagine not writing. You know, it's difficult the time and so on. So you are a, uh, on this side, uh, very much uh, almost a Renaissance woman. You're a uh, <laughs> Michelangelo of the 21st century. Uh, yeah, whatever you want to call. It. Yeah, I I like to. You know, I'm a really curious person, so I I really uh, enjoy learning new things and and figuring out why things happen. And also, um, when I when I was a child as well, I really liked solving problems. So whenever there was a problem in, in front of me, then I just wanted to solve it. And uh, even if it was, you know, 
a math formula or whatever, then uh, I tried to solve it in less steps as well. And I, I imagine or I, I can remember back that I had uh, some math teachers who were really encouraging me to actually solve problems faster. And they were rewarding for that as well. And I, I really enjoy that kind of mentality that uh, what you don't really find in old spaces, you know, at all yeah. companies, that if you can actually solve something smarter and faster in less steps, then uh, you actually created something something good again, which can be reused by someone else as well, maybe have someone else too to solve problems faster. So, um, yeah, um, if you want to call it a renaissance one, yeah, let's say that. Uh, but I think I, in general, I, I, it's just... I just yeah. wrote a series of articles on creativity. Mm-hmm. And I said the synonym for creativity is curiosity. Mm-hmm. That's what drives it. And, and, and I could go into the neuro, neuroscience of it, but leaving that aside uh, and talking about curiosity in a wide way, Walt Disney said, well, I, don't, I forget Walt Disney, Einstein said, Albert Einstein said, I have no particular skill. I'm just passionately curious. And it is a wonderful story that when he was 16, he posed this question to himself. If a car in space is traveling at the speed of light and it turns on its beams, will it proceed? The, would the beams still proceed it? That was the question. And he chased it to the answer until eventually he came on EMC squared, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the theory of relativity. And, and he always said that's what drove him, that curiosity. And I think that's fundamental to a creative person, that desire to know. And not necessarily know it in the sense that it relates to something. It's just that you want to know. And eventually, somehow it filtered through your mind. So, yes, you are. I, 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 I crown you Renaissance woman. So. <laughs> okay, thank you, then. <laughs> Let's move on. So, so you're a natural artist, artistic uh, sensitivity and, and skill and talent and so on. And then you, at some point, wrote a book. And you wanted to publish it. Yes. And that led to where you are today. Yeah, basically, yes. So when I had the two passions of my music and uh, literature, uh, I actually combined it too. So um, I was studying how um, and also writing about that, how music can influence the image of a country. And I basically wrote my master thesis about that. And um, I just realized that it's such a cool topic and uh, it could be interesting for someone else as well. And I want to publish. I'm stop you right now. Explain <laughs> that in our interview and I, I would explain that to me. Give me an example of how would it affect the image of the country. And is it, when you say affect an image to the outsider or to the natives and the citizens of the country, who's it reflecting the image of the company, of the country? It's uh, there are yeah two aspects of it in terms of uh, internal and external. So right. the people, the, basically the citizens who live in the country, uh, but also from an outside perspective. So I, I try to um, research both, and also from a, a theoretic perspective as well. What are the different uh, aspects and factors how music can actually influence uh, the image of the country in which parts of the different um, cultural aspects of country image. So, uh, so yeah, that was... Does the music lead the culture or does the culture lead the music? 
<laughs> I think uh, the culture uh, needs the music in general. And it's also, you know, part of the culture. Basically, in every country, you can find some kind of uh, national element as well. And some countries are famous about their music. Uh, so in case of, for instance, in case of Hungary, because I am actually from Hungary, uh, the classical music is pretty famous worldwide. So whenever I was researching that among uh, different kind of uh, nationalities, so I, I had a survey with, I don't know, like 400 people from different nations. Um, everyone was, when I asked about them, okay, what do you actually uh, think of, uh, what kind of music you think of when it's about Hungarian music? Everyone was telling it's classical music, you know. Uh, list, uh, yeah, interesting. And, they don't think about Hungarian folk music. No, it was more like classical. And that's, that was something interesting. And I thought that because, uh, there was a big evolution in terms of music in Hungary in the last couple, couple of, uh, years already. So a lot of really cool folk music or word music came to the picture as well, or, you know, different kinds of pop music as well. But somehow when it came to the, the image of a country, somehow everyone was actually uh, associating for that. Or when I was asking about uh, the Swedish culture, because I wanted to actually uh, have a comparison between the countries, then everyone said that uh, ABBA is <laughs> the music what they can associate for. And I totally get it. You know, it's uh, something uh, we all know. Um, let me spend two minutes on your thesis. When you mention ABBA, mm -hmm. so people relate to it because that's what they know about Finland. Very, if you ask people where Finland is, most people couldn't tell you. If they asked them who the, who the, the capital of Finland is, they wouldn't know. So when, what they only know is ABBA because that's popular and it's popular across the world and, and, and so on. So the publicity, but is the publicity reflecting the essence? Uh, in other words, does Abba reflect the essence of Finland? And that, that, that's the question I'm asking. I, I can understand that I was well known and they attach it, but does that really reflecting the true image? If you spoke to a Finnish person, would he say that Abba reflects them? I think in general, um, if there are positive feelings toward to, um, the, uh, the band or the type of music that was mentioned in my research, then people were really keen on, uh, saying that it reflects them in some way. So it was like, it's part of their culture. Uh, they agree with it. They are really proud of that as well. If there was any kind of negative feeling touched to that, then people were more reluctant to actually um, get associated with that too much. Um, so that's a different kind of, you know, um, so, so that's to, what I found. Not, not to do it on, because there's so much to cover in what you're doing. <laughs> and this is just one quick question. Uh, let's go back to America. So uh, let's take Mick Jagger and Rolling Stones. Obviously, mm -hmm. we're alone and certainly you could say American through and through. But there's so many shadings of music in America. You have a uh, country, you have, I mean, you have yeah. ten, you know, so many niches. Could anyone with music really reflect the image of a country? I think um, part of the, so there would be niches or there would be different groups uh, where they could actually have um, some kind of image that relates to the, the music as well. And uh 
when it comes to the U.S., it's a bit more diverse because there are so many states. They have their own um, different kind okay. of music as well. Uh, yeah. And I totally understand that it's, it should be a United States, you know, of America. Yeah. However, we all know that there are different uh, um I think actually, I think, I think what makes America great is the diversity. They were not united, yeah. homogeneous. Unfortunately, the McDonald's, in a sense, has created that homogeneous, but... In truth, it's that individuality of, of, of the preservation, even yeah. in New York, of different neighborhoods with the, with the yeah. traditions and the culture. That's, I think, gives it that energy and, 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 and lights it up. Let mm-hmm. me move on, obviously, to, 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 to publish drive. So mm-hmm. you wanted to publish a book. So this is the other side of this Renaissance woman, which is technology. <laughs> How did how did it evolve? You had a book you wanted to publish, you found it difficult to publish, and then? Yes, yeah, so basically I, I decided that I want to publish my master thesis, and then it was just a pain in the ass, the whole process. So first of all, I don't have a technical background. I always was admiring anything related to technology, so I was a, a geek person in that sense. However, I, I don't code. I don't, you know, do any kind of uh, engineering in that sense. Um, but I was always interested in that. And I, I looked for different solutions, what is out there already. And I couldn't really find a good one that was serving my needs. And also, um, I just figured out that to publish um, from Hungary to other countries, it was not really easy at that time. Um, and I just start to, started to look at, okay, what options there are. And I, I tried out the Amazon Kindle um, uh, self-publishing platform, which was really great. Uh, but I, but I actually missed out on a huge market as well with that, because I didn't actually publish everywhere in the world. Uh, because there are a lot of countries where Amazon is not dominant at all, because there are other players as well, or local players. And then I just realized that, okay, it could be done way much easier and way much faster as well, which could actually drive more sales for the authors. And, I published uh, first on my own, with my own help, um, after I figured out all the te- technical details, uh, only on Amazon first. And then people were buying my masterpieces, you know. It was like a very interesting feeling that people were buying it from the States, from Mexico, from Brazil. And it was not really, you know, a well... Uh, it's an e-book. Yes, it's an yeah. e-book. It wasn't right. professionally edited or, or, you know, all these kind right. of things. They How did you drive be... sales? How did you drive sales? I mean, Amazon has thousands, tens of thousands of books. How yeah, of course. Through, how do you cut through and get noticed? I think there were two main aspects at the time. So it was uh, obviously not right now. It was in 2014 when I did that. Um but uh, first of all, it was a niche topic, so it was not that um, covered with other um, similar type of books. That I think one of the main things. Uh, the other one that um, I actually was publishing some uh, articles for free as well related to the topic. And, you know, whoever was searching for this, um, they could find those uh, free articles as well on the search. And next to that, uh, the Amazon Link. landing page, yeah, right, it was linked right, to that. Right. So that's, that's what was helping. Obviously, this is a niche topic. So I didn't actually 
uh, expect to have any sales, I was like, oh yeah, well, it's, I just publish it and let's see. But I, I wasn't really sure that it would be any kind and, of, you know, and, and sales, sales at the end. And suddenly you found yourself buying a country estate because of the sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also it was like, I just realized that if my book or my master's thesis, which was not really professionally edited and it was a very niche topic and I, I knew that it could be better as well, uh, then I was totally sure that there are so many other people who have much better content who could actually really thrive with all the different platforms that they can publish, not just on Amazon, but on other platforms as well. So with my uh, co-founders from the university who I knew, and they have actually technical background, so they they studied engineering as well, um, we actually started to think about, okay, how can we make the whole process easier with a wider reach to publish basically everywhere? So uh, anyone from any country around the world, they could actually get their uh, content out or they can tell their stories to everyone uh, or to the widest network of readers, I would say. And um, we started to work on that together to figure out how how it can make happen. Uh, and um, yeah, it was pretty successful so far because we are still up and running and we are actually growing with uh even during the times of COVID, uh, which makes it hard for many companies and many uh, individuals as well to survive. But in our case, we are in a very fortunate situation that we can actually um, be in an industry right now, which is performing, um, I think, pretty well. And also what we are providing, uh, the service what we actually created, is to help in digital publishing in general. So whether it's in ebook audiobook or digital print-on-demand uh, file formats, we are basically helping the individual authors, but also some publishers as well who want to actually reach out and venture out to more markets to get more sales and uh, to serve out during these hard times when it comes to COVID-19. So I think it's uh, we, we are really fortunate right now that uh, we can make that happen and, and help some other uh authors, creatives, and also publishing companies to let get me, more sales. You, if I understand in simplicity, tell me if I'm correct, mm-hmm. that publish drives on the simplest level. Basically, you, you uh, download your book into the publish drive platform, and publish drive platform will then connect it to all the stores, online stores, I think about 400. So now yeah. it rings up in every store that if somebody's searching that particular store and they know to look for it, they'll be able to find it in that store. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, so that's one part of it. It's a platform and it's a delivery system into, into other stores. Yes. The challenge, as, as I always say, is you go to a bookstore and there's a hundred thousand books there. And unless you're familiar or you heard of it or you read of the author, you really, number one, haven't probably heard about it. Number two, even if you've heard about it, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's competing with things that you're comfortable with, authors that you're comfortable with. So how do your how do your writers, your authors, how do they drive drive traffic to their mm-hmm. We built some uh, promotional tools for that kind of purpose because we could actually see that, yes, we solved uh, the first problem, how we can actually sell books way faster and easier and to more channels. But then the next challenge comes, how we can market them better. 
Um, because obviously, as you mentioned as well, there are more and more books which are out there, which is great. Um, however, to get more visibility, the authors need some help. And uh, that's how we build some promotional tools which helps them to get more visibility within the stores. Um, one of them is to actually um, get featured positions within the stores. So we work with all the stores like Apple, Amazon, Google, Barnes Noble, Kobo, uh, for instance, uh, in a way that we know their marketing calendar for the year. So we know in which weeks, what kind of books they are looking for in terms of um, featuring them on the front page of the store or sending them out in newsletters to readers. And then uh, we basically collect that information and display back to our publishers and authors as well on the platform so they can see which campaigns are actually scheduled uh, at which stores and they can submit their titles there. Uh, we have an editorial team who are actually looking at the content, uh, which one could be forwarded to the stores. At the end of the day, the stores will decide whether they want to feature the specific title on the front page or in a specific category or in um, in their newsletters. And then uh, what we could see that whoever was getting this, uh, the, getting that featuring position successfully, they could actually drive their sales uh, at least five times more, which is obviously great because they get more visibility. They can actually uh, sell more books in that way. So that's a very important feature, and it's actually included uh, within the whole uh, subscription what we are offering. So um, I think that's one of the really cool things that authors can use. The other one um, what we built is related to book reviews um, because whenever you actually start uh, your uh, or start publishing your book um, and you want to sell it, then readers will actually look at the ratings and also uh, whether someone actually gave a review on your book. So that's super important to uh, get more reviews, uh, and not just on Amazon, but on other stores as well, like Apple and Google. So we built basically a solution where you can get uh, free review copies, which are uh, protected with DRM as well. Uh, so basically, it's not e- it's not uh, possible to copy it uh, or forward it to someone else, um, and then. Uh, you can basically send it out to uh, book reviewers or uh, bloggers, journalists, or whoever you want to, and they can leave a review based on that as well very easily. So it's a, a digital copy of your book, which is protected as well, and you cannot actually copy it. And that way you can increase the number of reviews, which will help you to stand out from the crowd already, uh, because obviously all the stores will favor the books which have more reviews and better ratings as well. And so that's uh, the second tool that we also built. And uh, we also offer price promotion options. So whenever there is an author uh, who wants to run a specific campaign, uh, for instance, 50% off uh, for Valentine's Day, what we had uh, not that long ago, um, they can do that in a scheduled way, so it's easy uh, to set it up for all the stores as well. And then we have some other options, um, which is related to advertising. So we uh, built our own uh, solution for Amazon advertising, uh, where you can basically um, 
have your book, whether, whether it's published through us on Amazon or whether it's actually published by the author themselves uh, on Amazon uh, Kindle Direct Publishing. And you can actually start um, advertising it through our solution, which helps you find the right targeting, uh, helps you find the similar books as well that you can target um, with Amazon advertising. And uh, we can see that that's a really useful tool for many of the authors because uh, when it comes to using any kind of advertising platform, it can be uh, a steep uh, learning curve uh, in terms of um, understanding and, and figuring out how those platforms work. And we made it easy. So uh, we help on the targeting side and uh, it's actually much easier to use. So that's super helpful for the authors who start uh, publishing. And then another tool what we build is basically to get featured positions in newsletters. So not with stores, but there are specific sites which have readers um, subscribe to their uh, newsletters and basically provide um, paid or uh, editorial um, placements in these newsletters as well. So I think that's also a really cool um, feature. What, what if, uh, how many books have to be sold to be considered successful? To say that it's successful? Um, it depends on the author's motivations so or what they want to actually uh, achieve. We have books which sell um, in a month, you know, more than 10K uh, US dollars. Um, but we have also books which sell only a few copies per month. So it really depends on the genre itself. It depends on uh, how much effort the author is putting into branding, because obviously, um, whether you are actually working with a publishing company or you are actually publishing your book uh, on your own, you have to build uh, your own author brand and you have to interact with readers. And uh, that's something that not all the authors are doing on the same level. Um, and that's how I think more successful authors can stand out easier if they put more effort into author branding and and uh, the other relationship. Is one niche is fiction stronger than non-fiction? So what we could see that um, our catalog, uh, we have more than 100,000 books, so um, it's a pretty big catalog. Uh, and about uh, 60% of our catalog is actually fiction and 40% is nonfiction. And um, fiction sells, um, I think, uh, a bit better than nonfiction in terms of uh, number of copies. Um, however, when the whole COVID-19 uh, happened last year, we could see that uh, the whole um, space changed a bit when it came to what was selling better. So in March and April, we could definitely see that any kind of uh, nonfiction title, especially related to educational content, uh, study guides, uh, self-help or psychology, like how you can actually get well with family relationships so on. Um, and also um, to learn new skills. So we could actually see that a lot of um, books related to learn uh, music, learn a new music instrument, for instance, or a music sheet, they were selling better um, during the whole COVID-19 uh, outbreak. So that was a really interesting uh, change in the trends. 
However, we could also see that fiction titles started to sell more and more as well. Uh, but it was a big jump for the nonfiction titles, especially in the beginning of the whole pandemic. And I think especially that um, still a lot of schools are uh, purely digital and who knows what will happen in the future uh, when things can go back to normal. Um, there will be still a lot of effort put into uh, creating is, is more nonfiction titles. Is digital overtaking print? Is uh, uh, are the bookstores going out of business because people are moving over to digital books? Um, I don't think so. That print or or ebooks or digital in general will overtake uh, print. Uh, I think what we can see that definitely there will be some uh, bookstores who are focusing on the physical bookstore side of the business. Um, they probably they probably have to rationalize. So um, we already can see that some bookstores are closing down um, some of their physical locations because it just doesn't worth it anymore uh, to keep them um, alive. However, what I believe that um, there will be more and more people who consume content digitally more. So whoever is reading ebooks or audiobook or listening to audiobooks, they wouldn't have read so many books in print uh, before. That's what I can see. Especially with um so you're, saying whole, it opened, you're saying it opened a new market. Yes, a new market definitely. And also, you know, um the whole pandemic as well opened up uh new readers in general because a lot of people were traveling before or you know they had other type of hobbies and now um everyone had to stay at home and then they were looking at uh, at home entertainment options and then they just figured out that reading is one of the best things to do um and they can do it in different formats and they can actually be pretty accessible as well with digital um books in general is there a crossover where a, a print publisher would see an ebook, a digital book successful and, and then bring that author into their fold and mm-hmm. so go from digital into print and get into the yeah. publishers? Yeah, there are many, many cases like that. That for instance, uh, 50 Shades of Grey, uh, from E.R. by E.R. James. It was actually started as a self-published uh, ebook as well early on, uh, and then uh, we all know how it went. So it, it became a big success, and uh, there are many more stories like that. When basically there is a self-published author who starts out um, starting their own uh, publishing business in very uh, small um, size, and then there will be a big success and more and more people are reading their book. And then there is a big publisher who just says, okay, I want that to be included in my um, author network. And they actually start uh, to print it out as well in all the different bookstores uh, with offset printing. Because right now, even um, without a big publisher, um, the self-published authors can get their books printed out as well with print-on-demand technology. So that's really cool that now um, 
You can get your book listed uh, within all the different stores as well in print uh, version as well. And then uh, you don't have to print it out, you know, upfront for uh, many thousand titles to get uh, listed within the stores. Uh, because with the print on demand technology, when the reader actually buys the book, uh, it will be printed just after that. And then it will be delivered to them in a few days, uh, which makes the whole uh, print business for the authors much easier and more lucrative as well. But even for big publishers. So I talked to a lot of big publishers in, in Portugal, for instance, and they mentioned that uh, they started to switch their whole offsite printing um, offset printing to uh, print on demand when it comes to their own bookshop because they just don't want to have uh, all the cash in, you know, in printed books, but what they actually have to deliver to all the shops. Uh, instead of that, they uh, just print it out when someone orders it and they try to put that kind of money into marketing instead, uh, which makes the whole process much easier for them. And I think uh, the whole industry will move into that direction that print and technology will be cheaper and cheaper uh, and more accessible for authors and publishers in general. A classic statement that I often hear, I also teach copywriting. Uh, my mm-hmm. background is primarily is in advertising. And the language people say again and again and again and again, nobody reads today. Nobody reads. And, you know, they're too busy with a million things and, and, and with all the online uh, type of entertainment and social media, et cetera, who's reading? So with all the books that you're, that you're selling and all the books that you've taken onto your platform, in a broader sense, is the reading market diminishing or expanding? It's expanding, definitely. And it's really interesting because... That's what I hear from everyone that oh, less people are reading, you know, and yeah. uh, which is actually not really true. So I just listened to I listened to um, an audiobook which is about um, how reading habits changed recently, and um, they also mentioned that during an average day, an average person is actually reading more uh, than before, but in different formats. So uh, you are right. Uh, a lot of people are reading on social media or on, on different blog posts and so on. But in general, they actually read more than before, but in shorter formats. So I believe... Well, that's not my idea. That's the second argument. They won't read long material. Yeah. So now when you have a novel or you have a nonfiction book, that's usually 200, 300 pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that market expanding or diminishing? The long reads. We, we, well, we can see that our numbers are growing. So, uh, that's what I can see only that, uh, that's expanding. And also when I, uh, see the market data, for instance, Nielsen mentioned that even for print book sales, which was not the best year for 2020 in general, I think, um, because a lot of bookshops were not, uh, open, um, they actually could see a 5% increase, uh, in sales. So I think, um in general and, and for print uh, or, or for the other digital formats, we actually could see even more than 50% growth. So I think um, in general, people are looking for more um, content 
And also, I believe that some of the authors, uh, and, and also in general, the publishing is a bit changing. So, um, previously we had, uh, those kind of books, which were, you know, thousand pages long. Um, now they are creating series from them. So they basically chunk the book in different part of the series. And, uh, that's how they can actually sell it, sell the, the content, which would be actually thousand pages long. But they uh, sell it in uh, maybe in ten part ten part series, you know. So that's that's what I can see that uh, the market is changing in a way that they prefer short term short content, short type content. Uh, but also the content providers and content creators they see those trends and they try to adapt to it because what else you can do than adapt to all the changes that are happening. So I believe. Uh, based on our numbers that the market is expanding and also people want to actually um, get more um, brain training basically because um, that's what also one of the findings of this uh, book what I mentioned which was about reading habits that uh, reading short-term short-form content uh, it doesn't really train your brain uh, meanwhile, if you read a long form content, you have to dive into that more and, uh, it somehow, um, gets a totally or moves a totally different part of your brain. And, um, I think, uh, that will happen in the future as well that more and more people will, uh, get used to, um, or at least search for a long term, long type of content and indeed in other formats as well. So I think that's the beauty of, of the digital revolution that um, you can listen to a book as well. And um, and you can actually do that meanwhile you are exercising or uh, doing any kind of uh, chores at home. And um, even for kids who don't know how to read yet because they are just two years old, uh, but they can listen to a book. And I think uh, that's, that's the beauty of the whole um, book revolution in general that more people will um get used to uh the books because it's it's not the same as it was 100 years ago you can get uh different kind of formats and it will give you uh, a different kind of experience in general i'll i'll when i review the creative uh, the copywriting course of course people brought up the question again that i started with do people read today so i'll tell you Two very wonderful comments by one was by a copywriter, and he mm-hmm. said the following. He said, nobody reads unless they're interested in it. Sometimes that's an advertiser. <laughs> you read what you're interested in, and if, if you're buying a car, you're going to read an advertisement about a car. You know, it's, it, it, your interest is what brings you to read. Then the head of a global advertising uh, agency conglomerate, Mm-hmm. Wrote a full, wrote an ad, uh, in, in the New York Times, full page. And the headline said, nobody reads long copy anymore. Here's why. And the whole page was filled with copy. It was <laughs> brilliant. It became very famous. He filled the whole mm-hmm. page and you would, and you, again, and everybody who saw that ad read every word that he wrote. And basically he said, you read what you're interested in and the writer has to make it interesting. If you do that, people read no matter how long it is, you know. I mean, yeah. 
Uh, I mean, the cancer that people don't read, I think, is, 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 is it doesn't hold good. I think the perception is wrong. So you built up this wonderful company. You're taking the publishing industry by storm. You're the <laughs> outsider who came in and, and just shattered all the old uh, uh, traditions. Where do you go from here to continue to, continue to grow it, or do you see new uh, new challenges, new horizons? Mm-hmm. We definitely. Uh, I'm personally, I'm looking forward to the new challenges what we can see with published drive. So uh, we are growing our business steadily, which is great. Um, and I mean that we already ventured out uh, providing more services, not just helping publishing the books, but helping uh, to promote them. And also, um, as we have seen a new trend on the industry, which is more related to collaboration. So there are a lot of authors who started to collaborate with each other and they started to build a co-author business basically. Uh, and they had a big pain that they couldn't actually handle payments easily and, and royalty payments in general. So we have them in, in the royalty reporting system to build it, uh, build a much more transparent uh, reporting system about financials. So I think in when it comes to the future of published drive, uh, what we really want to have is basically helping everyone, uh, whether it's an author or a publishing company who wants to publish a book or have anything to do with publishing in general. And they have a pain point and we want to give them a solution. So we already have different Products, what we can offer right now. Let me ask you, what about your pain point? You started off writing and music. I'm sure this takes a lot of your time. Do you ever say, what I really want to do is sit in the corner someplace and write my own book? (laughs) Yes, actually. (laughs) Yes, that's that's one of my plans for some time already. I have a non-fiction book already in my, my mind for some time. Uh, but also, I'd love to write um, a fiction book as well, like something related to fantasy and, and romance. So, we'll see. <laughs> I have that on my plate for some time, man. If, uh, if you had a choice today to develop further your music or your writing, which would you choose? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um Hmm, probably, maybe today I would choose music, but tomorrow maybe, uh, writing. So that's, that's, uh, interesting. And also because today I'm, I'm helping other people to, um, publish better. So basically I'm, I'm connecting to literature this way already. And that's why probably music is trying to get me that at least Another part, my hobby, uh, not my work, can relate to that. And maybe if I would be a professional music uh, musician, then probably I would actually write a book. So I think that's a balance what I actually can let, see let right now. Push, let me switch this question one more degree. Mm-hmm. I, I took playwriting. I was one of the most likely to succeed in the class, which I said meant most likely to be the broke for the rest of my life because I didn't know how many playwrights make money. But still, I love playwriting. But I pursued advertising. I dabbled somewhat in script writing. Most of my career has been advertising, very successful and very enjoyable, very creative. But there's still a part of me that deep down says, you know, but you never wrote that long piece just Mm -hmm. for yourself. 
do you deep down say, okay, I built this wonderful company, but I never wrote that piece? In other words, that the artist within you, that artistic soul in you, is still is saying, okay, I'll go along with everything you're doing, and it's paying the bills, and it gives a roof over your head, but you got to write someday. you got to do something mm-hmm. because that's who you are. Do you ever have that longing with inside of you, that deep artistic, Yes, it, I definitely have that. So, uh, that's why I actually want to, want to write, um, the nonfiction book, which is more about my learnings throughout building the company and also, um, being, you know, a women entrepreneur and, and, uh, especially in the publishing business, what I've learned. Uh, and that's, I think that could be interesting for many people. Um, so that's one story I would love to tell. Uh, and the other one is definitely something related to fiction, as I mentioned. Most of the CIO, CEOs that I've uh, interviewed for the podcast are entrepreneurs. And, uh, and, this, and how do you define an entrepreneur? How would you, looking at yourself, what would you say is an entrepreneur? That it's this type of personality. How, how would you define that? A risk taker? What, what words would you use? Uh, someone who is curious and also who wants to create something that helps other people uh, to get even more successful or more comfortable or in any other way they help other people. That's my vision about entrepreneurship in general. I know that not everyone is like that, but uh, that's what I believe. A lot of them are, actually. They, 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 they don't necessarily put it together that way. But it evolves when they have a certain degree of sense that they reach out to help people. I found that very yeah. today. I noticed that today. It's sort of, it may not come directly from what they're doing as it is with you, which is directly as you said a problem solution, but to find a, ta- a tangent way that they could direct some of their energy to do that. I think, I think it's an instinctive nature. It's a, but I think it comes from a very human side, which transcends mm-hmm. the corporate side and the business. Uh, they brought the humanity, and you know, going back to what I started with, it's who's that person mm-hmm. that built this business? They're the ones who shaped the business. The business doesn't shape them. So what advice would you offer? Like, one single advice that you would offer to entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think, uh, if someone is thinking about, uh, starting their own business, I would just, I would just suggest them to start as early as possible, because, um, I also had that kind of um, feeling that um, when I uh, before I started, I had different offers from you know Google uh, or big or other big companies, and then I just felt the need that okay, um, I could go and work for a big corporation later on as well, but to start my own business and and um, basically um, find a solution for this problem and help help other people. I have to try it out right now and, um, and make, you know, make that happen. So I think that's the first thing to start as early as possible. Uh, and maybe the second one is, um, that a lot of entrepreneurs, um, or, or startupers, I would say, uh, are looking for, you know, money related, uh, stuff at the beginning. So they want to, uh, get funding or, uh, they just really focus on, um, the financials. Meanwhile, uh, I believe if there is a, a product or there is a service to create in the beginning and you actually can find a few customers 
who are actually paying for that because it's a value what you created. So it's, it's already helping them in any way. Then the money will come, whether it's in forms of uh, customers, paying customers, obviously, or whether it's in forms of uh, investors. So I would always um, say to other uh, startups or entrepreneurs to focus on the value creation and, and create something, even if it is not the final product, but at least, you know, an MVP, a minimum viable product that can actually be uh, pitched to a potential uh, customer. And if they see that, yes, it's a value that you created and it's it's uh, valuable for them, then they will pay for you. And uh, I think some entrepreneurs are just not patient enough to wait for that. Meanwhile, I think it's super important uh, because without that, um, you don't do any anything, uh, you know, valuable, I think. And um, just to raise some funds and then you start working on the product, I believe that's not the right direction. So I would always encourage everyone to, uh, even if it is a small thing, but uh, create it first, create some kind of value and find some customers, talk to some customers who can actually either help you fine tune uh, the whole um, product or service you created or uh, actually buy from you. So these are the best things what uh, people could do. Let me ask you a final question, but I'm curious. Is there something in what you're doing that comes from your Hungarian background, your Hungarian culture? Do you see an overlap? For instance, as an American, I could say we're, you know, we're very optimistic. We believe we can do anything. Is there some aspect of the Hungarian culture that you see within yourself that is being expressed through what you're doing? Um, I think maybe the part uh, where I love uh, solving problems and, you know, there are a lot of famous Hungarian inventors as well around the world. mostly actually uh, moved to the States, uh, but uh, many of them actually are uh, famous in terms of inventing a lot of things. And I think maybe that kind of thinking um, that what is the problem and how it could be solved uh, is somehow the Hungarian part. Um, But in general, from the very beginning, uh, we always thought that um, our company will be international and global and thank God we actually are like that because we have customers from more than 100 countries um, and most of them are actually from the States. So I, I believe we carry a lot of um, positive um, elements of different cultures as well um, and I think um, that's the most important thing especially with our clients who come from a very diverse background. And finally, well, this is my curiosity. Is Kinga, uh, the name Kinga, I'm not familiar with it. Okay, uh, it's actually, a, it has a meaning. So, uh, Kinga is actually a, a German, um, German type of a name, and it means um, a powerful woman. Oh, who is wow. willing to fight. <laughs> so <laughs> is that the name your mother gave you at first? And they saw it already? Yes, yeah. That's, that's um, actually my father my father wanted to give me uh, a longer version of it. Uh but then my mother said no, I'm I don't agree with that. But with the shorter one I'm okay. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, 
that, that's fascinating. I mean, they nailed it from day one. Oh my god. <laughs> Maybe, anyway, yeah, I had to live up to my name, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was hanging over your shoulder. Uh, well, let me thank you so much for your time. It, it's a wonderful conversation. Uh, I could listen to you for another hour and then just <laughs> let you educate me. Uh, you, you, you've my horizon. Uh, and I'm going to share this with my writing class uh, because I think it's very inspirational for them to know that there are opportunities to get public that they would have mm-hmm. never thought about, and it was for them to want to write more because mm-hmm. finding these an open door. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the difficulty of trying to get a book published is, is like a Mount Everest, and then mm-hmm. something is published live, and you can do it. And, and, and that's, you know, as you said, you solved a major problem, and you're helping many people, and congratulations. And thank, thank you very much. for all that you're accomplishing. Thank you very much for your time. Have a great week. I'll speak to you. Take care. Thank you for joining Charlie Katz, our executive extraordinaire, in yet another insightful interview. Be sure to check out more stories from CEOs across the country at bitbean.com forward slash CEOs speak to learn more about what it takes to get to the top and stay there.